Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 6, 1-4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And as you're grabbing a seat, let me pray. Father, we, we long for your glory. Father, we long to be the people that you've created us to be, who would live all of our lives for you. Spirit, would you help us? Would you make this moment, this morning, this time, just a time where, where you are calling us to live more of our lives for your glory? Would you fulfill that in us, that we would be a beacon of light, a beacon of life, a beacon of love in this city because God is here with us. Lord, we know that these things are true of us. We just ask for more of it by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in our sermon series this morning, once again, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're new or you're visiting or maybe you're just a normal person and you forget most of the sermons that you've ever heard, I think I remember two. I think there are two sermons that I remember. Uh, If you're one of those people, then let me orient you once again to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is, without question, it's the most famous sermon in the Bible. It's a gripping sermon. It's a beautiful sermon. It's often quite controversial. If you, if you read the whole scope of the sermon, there's some surprising things in it. Uh, it's a popular sermon. It's something that's still quoted today in our popular culture. Maybe most famous of those quotations that you might be familiar with are, judge not lest you be judged. Or perhaps, do unto others. Something like that. Jesus said something like that in the sermon. But as we explore it, I think what we're going to have to do as we jump into the sermon series this morning, we're going to have to to leave our expectations of the sermon kind of behind us. We're used to reading it in a certain way and taking it for granted in a certain way, but we're challenged as we open up the Bible to read the Sermon on the Mount in its own terms. Not bringing our culture and applying it to it, but, but listening to what Jesus was actually saying. And here's the thing, Jesus isn't just interested in teaching a couple of neat things to a small group of people in 80-30. He's not interested in that. He's not interested in just leaving us 2,000 years later with some catchphrases and some sound bites. That's not what he's doing in the sermon. No, Jesus speaks to us from the mountain as the Savior God who has graciously entered into humanity to save us from our brokenness and our sin. And to do something the Apostle Paul would later call in the Bible, to build a new humanity. To build a new humanity. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's instructions from Jesus, who is God, who is King, who is Lord. Instructions for his people, for his new humanity. Instructions for true flourishing, for blessing as followers of Jesus. 
It's an incredible sermon. Let me just stop right now and, and plug. If you've not read the Sermon on the Mount from the beginning of, of Matthew chapter 5 until the end of chapter 7, I'd encourage you to do that. Do it in one sitting. Get used to the Sermon on the Mount. Study it. Read it again. It's meant to be held in mind and even memorized and thought through frequently. So do that. And the result of this sermon throughout history has been absolutely incredible. You see, this sermon has resulted in 2,000 years. 2,000 years of Christians living their lives for Jesus. 2,000 years of Christians whose lives have been radically changed by Jesus. And the result of that has been people standing around and observing the glory of God as it comes down in a new humanity in this place. It's beautiful. And after all, that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. In Matthew 5, verse 16, Jesus says this at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Okay, your works, you're doing something as you follow Jesus, and give glory to your Father. Not to you. To give glory to your Father who is in heaven, as they marvel at the grace of God given to you, at his work in your life. So the Sermon on the Mount is, and obviously to shine brilliantly as, as Jesus' people, we're going to have to be taught some stuff. Right? Because it's not our natural disposition, I think, to just li naturally live out the glory of God and his righteousness in our lives. So actually, that's what the majority of the sermon is about. Jesus teaching us how to live the right way in this world. How to live, in other words, his greater righteousness that he's teaching us. A real rightness. A real righteousness. And this righteousness Jesus teaches about, it's something that penetrates us. If you've been paying attention and listening through the last several months in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you probably have been convicted at a time or two. I've been, I've said this often, but I'll say it again. I've often reflected with the other pastors at Christ City with how this sermon is shaping us as pastors. And it's challenging and convicting us, it seems like, every day. As our hearts are laid bare by Jesus' words. As this greater righteousness, which he is driving at, penetrates deep into us and exposes us and lays us bare before a holy God. But here's the thing. Even as Jesus convicts us, he invites us. Because he's standing on this mountaintop, not with a frown, waiting to just judge us. He's standing with a smile and his arms open wide. He's saying, come, come to me. Come to me. I will make you this new humanity. I will work my greater righteousness in you. I can start it. I can begin to change you and make you new. <clears throat> so we're in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what we're in today. It's a joy. And as we're in it, we are beginning today a new section Jesus has just finished his first six examples of greater righteousness. Those were from chapter 5, verse 21 to 48. He kind of gave six case studies of what it looks like to have this greater righteousness from the heart. And now he moves into the new section in chapter 6. And the little section that we're in still continues this idea of greater righteousness. But in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 6, Jesus is now applying this idea of this greater righteousness. And he's probing at the motivations of our hearts 
in our own personal spirituality, in our personal piety, in how we give, and how we pray, and how we fast. There'll be three examples. We'll go through them the next couple weeks. And right now, again, each of these examples, he's aiming at our hearts. Again and again, he's teaching us that it matters not just what we do in our walk with God, but it matters why we do it. So here's our outline this morning. We're going to look at righteous motivation, righteous giving, and God, our Father. So look with me at chapter 6, verse 1, in our first point, righteous motivation. Jesus says, Beware. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And if you're looking for a a thesis statement for this new section, verses 1 to 18, this is the thesis statement. This is the head verse that then gets worked out in three different examples. The example of giving, the example of praying, and the example of fasting. So it stands at the front of all three of those examples. And to paraphrase this verse, Jesus is saying this. He says, your motivations for doing good matter just as much as the good that you do. Look again at chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness. That's, That's the things that you do before other people. And here's the motive. In order to be seen by them. Now, I'm sure you never do anything in your life with ulterior motives. I'm sure, I'm sure that you're not those kinds of people. I think much better of you than that. But I do. Okay? I, I do it all the time. And one of the hardest things for me is that, is that every week as a pastor, I labor and I pray and I work for 20 hours on a sermon. And I come here and, I, and I, I've labored, I've prayed, and I've sincerely wanted the glory of God. I've, I said, God, would you work powerfully in your people? And would you change hearts and lives? And would you lift yourself up? Can we all see Jesus for his beauty and his greatness and his glory? And then, and then I walk off the stage after my sermon, and I'm just ambushed by my own twisted motivations. I walk off this stage and I'm punched in the face by my sinful heart. Because you know what I do? I walk off the stage and it's like I've forgotten all of that motivation for the glory of God. And I look at you and I wonder, who's going to come and talk to me and praise me? Who's going to say, hey, Brent, that was a great sermon. Do you see how twisted that is? God's given me a good thing to do for him. It's a privilege It's not supposed to be about me at all. Something I get to do to participate in his glory. But I'm ridiculously adept at at stepping into God's limelight. I'm like Kanye West, right? 2009 MTV Music Awards, right? Stepping out and Taylor Swift's about to receive the reward and he walks into her limelight. That's me. I, I walk into God's limelight. You know, hey God, I'll take the mic now. Thank you, God. Let me do a little bit of talking. I take what's designed to bring praise to God and I turn it around as a platform to find praise for me. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
What about you this morning? How much good do you do in your life that's really more about you than it is about God? How many of the good things that you do are even less about the the person you're helping than they are about you? Do you work a little harder when certain people are around or volunteer for a few more good things if you know someone's watching? I mean, we're going to talk about giving in a second, so I'll ask you this. If your charitable donations were put up on the projector for 2019, up here, all right, your donations from 2019, what would your response be? Would you, A, be really embarrassed because you're thinking about how all these people think of you? Or would you, B, be really proud? You're like, ah, pretty good. <laughs> because you're thinking about how all these people think about you. Or would you see, be quietly confident because you know that, man, my giving is for God. It's between him and me. I've done it to praise him. I just want to please him. And to be secure in that. Who are you serving? Who are you aiming to please? Here's the thing. Your life and mine are kind of like a cup. It's a cup. And this cup has a purpose. It's designed to be filled up and to overflow with the love of God for you. And to overflow, to spill over the edge, and to spill over with abundance into the lives of the people around you, so that God gets the glory. That's what he made you for. If you're somebody here this morning who's wondering, what is my purpose as a human being? It's that. It's to have your life so filled up with the love of God and flow outward into the lives of others that God is eternally praised. That's what he made you for. And glory is such a funny word in the Bible. You know, one of its most basic meanings is to be heavy. To be heavy. There's a weightiness to glory. And if you know Einstein, you know that that massive, weighty things have this gravitational pull to them. They draw things to them. And when you and I are the most weighty things in our imaginations and in our own little universes, we become these black holes that gobble up praise and attention and adoration from other people. We draw it all to us. It's our default setting as sinful human beings to draw it all to ourselves. But Jesus teaches us that our motivations are upside down. They're corrupted. They're backwards when we're at the center. It's all wrong. That's not what we're made for. We're made to be these vessels that exist for the glory of another. For the glory of God who alone is worthy of that glory. The one who created us. The one who the Bible says is love. Who is just. Who is holy. Who is good. Who is perfect. Our lives are to revolve around him. Everything is to revolve around him. Matthew 5, 16 gets it exactly right, where we get it so constantly wrong. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And besides, unless you didn't notice, let me remind you, chapter 6, verse 1 in the Sermon on the Mount is a warning. It's a warning. Look at how it begins with that little word, beware. And then it ends, if you're living for the praise of others, then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. There isn't 
reward from God. There isn't participation in His kingdom, in His blessing for those who are seeking the glory for themselves. No, it's, it's for those who quietly serve and who give and do good and confidence in who they are before God and for His glory, not their own. Now, that, to be sure, could have been a whole sermon just by itself. Right? But that's just the heading. That's the heading over the next 18 verses. And we need to jump in now in our second point, righteous giving, and look at what Jesus says as he applies that verse and that idea to the concept of our, of our giving. So look with me then at righteous giving and verses 2 to 4 and see how Jesus puts these pieces together. He goes on, he says, thus, thus, with verse 1 in mind, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. One of the things we have to be careful about in this passage is just translating our own cultural experience in the church today and imposing it on what is happening here in this passage. There's a way that we can just impose what's going on in our lives and say, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's not quite right. This passage is actually much bigger than that. To be sure, we all live in a broken world where there are many vulnerable poor around us, but it's not like it was in Jesus' day. You see, Jesus is speaking these words in a world where there was no social net. Speaking it in a world before there was a clever democratic system where people who were on the bottom rung were taken care of to some degree. For this reason, giving or showing mercy in Jesus' time through your contributions or your physical means, it wasn't a nice thing to do when the government didn't do quite enough. No, giving was essential for the vulnerable poor to survive. Giving was essential for the vulnerable poor to survive. That's the context that Jesus is talking in. We need to realize something else, though. Because it's in this context and this brutal ancient world where the poor were so often oppressed that many, many, many years before Jesus, God had already intervened. God had already intervened by giving the Jewish people that he was speaking to, by giving them his law. His gracious and his good law. You see, God had welcomed these Jewish people into relationship with himself. And he loved them. He'd rescued them and redeemed them. He'd given them everything that they had and he had protected them. And he commanded them to love others as he had graciously loved them. He wanted them to turn that love and that grace they've received outward. Including commanding them to be careful to love people who were on the margins. That when you were vulnerable and poor, whether you're just somebody that didn't have a family or maybe a stranger who just wandered into this nation, Israel, or whatever was going on, make sure you watch out for those people and you care for them and you love them. The whole Old Testament, the first half of the Bible is full of passages which talk about God's care for the poor and his teaching to this Jewish people about how to care for them. I'm going to just give you two examples of this. One is from Leviticus 25 verses 35 to 37. In that passage, we read this. It's a very old passage. If your brother comes, if your brother becomes poor and cannot, cannot maintain himself with you, 
You shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. And he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. That's one very old text uh, from the first five books of the Bible and the law of Moses about this, this kindness that we're to show to those who are poor. And there's many others like it applying to all kinds of different situations. But then let me show you another much older text from Isaiah. This is nearly a thousand years later after that first text. And this text is actually functioning a little differently. This one's a rebuke, not just instruction. It's a rebuke for God's people for not doing what he had purposed for them. And there God says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Sounds a little bit like 5.16, doesn't it? Let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Well, in Jesus' day, when we're jumping back into Matthew 6 now, in Jesus' day, these very old passages of Scripture, they were known and they were treasured. They were understood. So in Jesus' day, he didn't have to go and teach the people when he was speaking from the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't have to say, hey, you should give to people. You didn't have to do that. That was part of the culture. But, Here's the but. This is where Jesus was driving at a greater and a deeper righteousness. Because Jesus knew that even the good works of giving to the poor have been polluted. They've been corrupted and they've been twisted. Jesus knew that rather than an act of pure love for God, for God and for your neighbor, giving in his culture had become a means of attaining a social standing. It had became a way for you to love yourself, not God or neighbor. Just look back at his words in Matthew 6, verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now, there aren't any historical examples that, that we have that show that there was a practice where Jewish people would, would blow trumpets before they gave. So we're not sure if Jesus is speaking metaphorically here or literally. But whatever the case, it's really clear what he's driving at. So what he's driving at is that giving had this potential problem of becoming that something that you did for you. Giving was something you did for you. After all, this kind of makes sense, is if you give in a generous way, what would happen? Will you become known as the generous person? Hey, here, there goes the generous guy, right? And, and who wouldn't praise and adore the generous guy? You were invited to the best parties, right? Just like today, if you're the generous person. You'd gain a better social network. You'd probably have the best business opportunities come to you because of your generosity, you would attract more customers, maybe because your donations were, you know, publicly displayed on the wall as you walked into the building, right? Okay, this is a generous company. All right, you know, let's, let's go with these guys. And I don't know, maybe, maybe they received some tax credits for their, for their giving. Probably not. But in verse 2, Jesus calls these people hypocrites. You hypocrites. 
Now, hypocrites is a really important word in both the Sermon on the Mount, but also in the book of Matthew. And by using that word hypocrite in the Sermon on the Mount and then throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus is driving at something very particular. He's driving, he's driving at a misalignment between the actions that you do and the desire that you have in your heart. The actions that you do and the love for God and neighbor that's just not there. Doing the right thing on the outside, but what's going on in the heart's not right. You hypocrites. Jesus is rebuking these people because their giving was supposed to be an act of pure love for God and for neighbor, but it had become something done to serve oneself. You know, this sort of hypocritical giving, I like to think of it like the waters of False Creek. Right? On a summer's day, you look at the waters of False Creek, and you'd be tempted to jump in and go swimming. Right? But if you're from Vancouver, you know, woe are you who jump in the waters of False Creek in August to go swimming. Go to the hospital immediately afterwards and get very strong antibiotics. Giving with us at the center, it pollutes our giving. Giving because we want a tax refund or we want to look good or we want to be esteemed. It means that we're not truly loving God or the one that we're giving to. We're loving ourselves. And Jesus warns us, this polluted sort of of giving, it's got no reward from God. It's only the non-hypocritical giving of the whole person who lives their lives out of love for God and for his glory that is rewarded. Look at Matthew 6, verses 3 to 4. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. He's going to reward you. Now, to be sure, there's a weird literalistic interpretation of this passage, right? But I want to relieve you of that. Jesus is not saying that every good thing you do or that you're giving even has to necessarily be as secret and in the back rooms as possible. I've definitely thought that at times of my life. I bent over backwards once to make sure that somebody didn't know about something good that was happening in the the church. That's not exactly what Jesus is saying here. So let me relieve you of any gymnastics that you do at the the gift table. You know, when you're like hiding your right hand in your back pocket and then, you know, giving like just so no one sees. Don't worry about that. That's not what this passage is about. It's not secrecy that's the concern. What's the concern is who you're aiming to please. God or other people. Is your desire the praise of men in your giving or is it a sincere praise of God? Man, after all, brothers and sisters, Christ said you need to hear this. God knows your heart. So Jesus says, your father who sees in secret. He sees, he, his eyes penetrate deep inside of you. He knows what's going on there. 1 Samuel sixteen seven is a great cross-reference for this. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Jesus' push, his challenge to us is, and let your giving be from the heart, so that God who sees the heart will reward you for it. As we turn to our third point now, God our Father, I have a question for you. We've been talking this whole way through the whole way through the message so far about how you and I are so adept at taking glory that belongs to God 
and, and turning it on ourselves. I'm talking about how we're so good at, at seeking the praise, not of God, but of other people. And my question is this, have you ever wondered why? Why? Why do we want it so bad to be praised from other people? Well, I think at least one of the reasons, I think one of the significant reasons is that you and I are super insecure. I don't care how successful you are here in this room. I don't care how big your bank account is. You're human. You're vulnerable. There's a deep fundamental insecurity to who you are as a human being. I think that insecurity, it causes us to do something. It causes us not to look outward to God for what he can give us, but inward to ourselves. How can I establish some security in this world? How can I look to these people over here to give me what I don't have, to make me feel okay? How can I work to achieve this security that I need? I think this insecurity then, it inevitably pollutes and corrupts our every action because it makes every action in some way about me. Trying to get what I want. I mean, I don't know if you you know anybody in your life who's just deeply insecure. Maybe you have a friend or two you could think of. I've got someone who always stands out in my mind when I think of insecurity. I had a friend on my block when I was a kid, and he was super insecure. It was heartbreaking, honestly. And he'd talk loudly. He'd butt into conversations all the time. He'd work really hard just to get us to, to be around him. Uh, he'd cry a lot when things didn't go his way. He tried to take control of the situations that were going on. And he was clamoring all the time, I think, just to get our attention. Clamoring to be loved by us. To be cared for by us. To have something from us. It was ugly. And honestly, in my sinful childhood heart, I had a really hard time being around this guy. My mom was reaching out to his mom. And I'm like, oh man, he's coming over again. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to be near him. But it's so clear to me now where all of that behavior came from. And as I was thinking about it this week, man, it was breaking my heart. It's so tragic. Because my friend, he desperately wanted my love and my approval and my friendship because my friend had no security of his own. He didn't have any. His mom was an addict. She'd been bouncing around between different men. Who knows how long they'd be in his life. She had him and his little sister in tow. He just had no father. No one to love him. No security of his own. And in his brokenness, my friend, he looked to create his own stability. (laughs) How can I be loved? I want it so bad. But in his brokenness, that insecurity, it didn't bring people towards him. He didn't know how to love purely, and it drove people away from him. You know, I think, I think you and I are a lot more like my childhood friend than we realize. We're, all, we're a lot like him. I think we're insecure too. We're just a little older and a little more mature, and we know how to hide it better. We know how to bring it out, dress it up, and lead it around. But we desperately desire love and security from others, don't we? Is that true? We want that. We clamor around in our lives trying to get it. I mean, maybe some of this will land on you. Let me ask you some questions. Do you ever think, if I could be more successful, I'd finally fit in? 
a little more successful, I'd be connecting with those people. If only I could win his or her or their approval, then I'd be okay. If only I could be loved by that one person. Who is that person for you? If I could win that person's love and affection and approval, everything would be all right. If only my grades were a bit better, then I'd have the esteem of my classmates and the respect of my professors and my teachers. If only I do well enough, then finally it will be enough and I'll be enough. Man, our insecurity is so tragic. It causes us not to look to God for our approval and for the love that we need, but it looks to others. It causes us not to look to God, but to try to find our security from others and to do all of our good deeds before men and women to be seen by them. That's what it drives us to. But this is where the gospel is so transformative. This is where the good news about Jesus changes everything. Hear this. Through Jesus, through Jesus who stands and speaks these words to us in the Sermon on the Mount, through him, God invites you into real, lasting, eternal love and security. He's opening wide his doors to his family. Come to me. Join me. I want to invite you into my family. He invites us into his eternal inheritance. Into the blessings that the eternal God, who is love and good and just and pure and holy, to all that he has. Into the fullness of his resources. To his wealth. To his eternal and his steadfast love. He's been in the love and the family and the redeeming business for all of eternity. Drawing us into it. He's not changing. He invites us into the stability and the warmth and the joy of home. The home that you were made for. And man, we need it. Because in our sin and our brokenness, man, we're orphans. We are impoverished. We're vulnerable. We're needy. We've got deep wounds, each one of us. Some of you probably have wounds that you've never spoken to anybody about. We're broken. And into our need in the Sermon on the Mount, in this passage, Jesus speaks of this God and his resources and his blessing and his love. And he uses two beautiful words to describe him. Did you notice that? In verse 1 and verse 4, he calls this God your father. He calls him your father. And in chapter 6, there's this wild concentration of that father language for God. It's almost like Jesus is driving at something important. In 12 times, 12 times in this chapter, he will refer to God in this way as your father, your heavenly father, your good father. Because Jesus knows that our quest for security and the praise of others is empty. He knows exactly what we're missing and what we're ignoring. He knows that we're ignoring the eternal security of our Father. 
Psalm 36, verse 7 says this. Think of your father. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. Steadfast. It doesn't change. Stays the same forever. How precious is that love? The children of mankind, they take refuge, not in the praise of others, but in the shadow of your wings. Look at the good news of the gospel in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. These words are remarkable. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. So why does it matter whose praise we're seeking when we give? It matters because it's only giving that's offered for the security of relationship with the eternal, loving, good Father that will enable us to love and to give and to do right with pure motives. Not to give in order to get. Not to give in order to be seen. Not to give in order to clamor for a little bit more of security for ourselves. But to give purely and unpolluted, and uncorrupted out of the overflow of the love we ourselves have received from God, our Father. That's why it matters. So here's my my question for you this morning. As you look at your own heart, as you reflect on these things, as you hear these words, as you you look at the way that, that you strive to please others, do you know God like this? Do you know him as your father? Through Jesus, you can. Through Jesus, you can. Jesus is the one who came, who died the righteous for the unrighteous so that he could bring us to God, our father. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. You know how you can know God like that? You can start by repenting of the ways that you've looked to establish your own security from other people. Say, God, I don't want to do that anymore. Enough of me already. Enough of me trying to get more from me. That's not working. Father, help me to turn instead away from that and towards you. He's inviting you to seek him, to draw near to him, to take a Bible. Friends, if you don't have a Bible, I'd love to give you one. There's one around the corner. Grab it, take it home. Open it. Read it. Learn about the character and the goodness and the grace of God, your Father. You know how you can do this? By joining his family. By drawing near to a community that loves him, that knows him. Are you in a community group? Are you getting to know the people around you sitting in the chairs next to you? Are you practicing walking with Jesus with somebody as you pursue him together? You know how you can do it? You can do it by giving yourself to prayer. Starting simply and just saying, God, I don't know you like this, but I'd like to. Would you help me to see your love for me in Jesus? And would you change me? Would you draw me near? Would you help me to learn that you are my loving and my good father? Cry out to him 
in prayer. As we wrap all this up, I want you to think about this. Christ City, this text is really about giving. And we should give. We should be richly generous from the heart as those who are secure, who are loved by God, our Father, and who have that overflow from us to other people. But there's another reason. The other reason is because Jesus gave this way. And Jesus, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you put your faith and trust in him, it is Jesus' life and his spirit that is at work in you. Jesus, not so long after standing on this mountain teaching this sermon, he would fulfill his plan to bring us love and security. But it would cost him his life. He went to the cross and he gave quietly. He didn't draw attention to himself. He didn't do it to be praised from those around him. And when no one else realized what was happening, he gave us his life. He knew the love of the Father for him, and because of that love, he was secure. Even when it cost him most personally and most deeply, he was secure. And he trusted God to reward him, and you know what? God did. Look at Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He gave himself. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. He's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gave himself quietly and completely for the glory of the Father, but his gift did not go unnoticed, and God richly rewarded him. You know what our reward is? As we give in the same way from hearts that love God, Jesus invites us into the glory of his Son. We get to be there with him. To rejoice in praising and knowing and loving and being secure for all of eternity in him. Brothers and sisters, may our giving and our actions this week be like Jesus. Would you pray with me?